Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by the Elfmark VDS racing team. On today's show, we're going to look back at the Catalan Grand Prix in the Moto2 and Moto3 classes. Steve English, David Emmett, Neil Morrison and Adam Wheeler on the show. And David, we've obviously had uh, this week's Paddock Pass podcast already out, but there was an awful lot that went on in the Moto2 and Moto3 classes as well. Uh, yeah, it was. I mean, the Moto2 uh, race was almost uh, placid by comparison. Moto3 was absolutely terrifying and uh, once again we saw stewards making decisions um, when they perhaps shouldn't and not making decisions when they should. Neil what about you obviously the Moto2 and Moto3 classes are pretty much your baby on uh, Friday and Saturday and then you were able just to sit back and relax and watch the Moto3 class then basically have a fist fight in the middle of the race. Yeah exactly lovely relaxing view in that Steve. Um, I think I was uh, yeah without breath for all of the laps that we saw. Um, yeah, I'm kind of with Dave in this one. It was um, it was really exciting, but it was, I think, more scary than it was. And also some of the, the antics and it just left a bit of a bad taste in your mouth. You weren't really sure whether this was actually how racing should be conducted. Um, so yeah, I'm sure we'll get into that in a little bit more detail. But um, yeah, it was, uh, it was one of those ones where I wasn't sure whether I actually enjoyed it. It was more like, yeah, that was just, that was just leaving me really nervous and uneasy. Obviously, uh, Adam as well. Like, uh, I don't want to give Neil a compliment, so I'm going to give you the compliment for publishing Neil's blog about his love-hate relationship with Moto3. So that was great work as an editor, Ad, obviously enough. And uh, <laughs> it kind of did encapsulate what I think an awful lot of people felt in the aftermath of Mugello and then what we saw on Sunday as well. That's right, Steve. Well, I mean, it's uh, it's pretty demanding editing Neil's copy, you know, the odd uh, piece of punctuation here or there. Um, it's, it's, it's a you know, a time-consuming and soul-sapping job. But uh, he did a pretty good job this time. Um, yeah, I mean, I completely forgot what you asked me, but I'll just say, uh, you know, <laughs> Moto3, when it came down to it this week, uh, I was a little staggered, to be honest. I mean, the guys, you know, David Neil said how terrifying the race was. I just thought um, how kind of brainless most of them were. Uh, you know, it was seven days away from, you know, somebody losing their life in the category. Um, and some of the tactics, while you can almost understand it from the viewpoint of uh, intense racing and, and racecraft and strategy, uh, the other sort of part of me thought it was uh, just just um, bewildering, really, um, just to try and be holding riders up, uh, slowing the pack, uh, tripping over each other. I mean, there was a couple of near misses on down into turn one. I think one with Jalma Massia in particular, when you saw the onboard cameras. I mean, I know TV cameras are always deceptive in terms of their proximity and distances, but it looked like uh, it was another disaster waiting to happen. And I'm not surprised that we kind of heard rumors on Sunday that there was a bit of a crisis meeting with team managers afterwards. Yeah, I'm just going to apologize at the top of the show for this, but I'm actually on my way down to Misano for World Superbikes. And uh, we've had to record the show with me outside on a motorway service station so if you hear trucks going past a little bit of wind that's all it is but uh, Adam you you mentioned there about that last couple of laps and uh, we'll kick off the show talking about those last few laps because there was a time during that race and it was Jeremy Alcobo we saw him take the wide line through those last couple of corners open the door for people to go through and it was the smart thing to do in the early stages of the race he was putting himself into position to learn where he had to be on the last lap to attack but on those last laps that's when we saw no one wants the lead. There were six, seven, eight riders abreast at one stage, all of them just trying to delay getting onto the start-finish straight for as long as possible. And there comes a time during a race where you just have to react to what's happening around you and you just have to just be where you are on the racetrack. And you, you, 
you know, it, this was one of those times where I think everyone was shouting at the screen, just telling the riders to get on with it. Yeah, and it's. Uh, I do wonder if some of the fears we've had around Moto3 over the last few years are starting to really catch up and, and just bunch together, or this might just be a series of occurrences uh, that, you know, you could label as a coincidence. But, you know, the last lap, uh, the red flag, um, you know, also the accident with the Yumo Sasaki, you know, that he thankfully seems to be okay, um, you know, after being hospitalized. I think he had a problem at the base of his spine, was a, a small fracture in one of the vertebrae. Um, the exact details escape me, but um, it was another demonstration of uh, you know how the, the the category is just bizarrely twisted and also um, gripping. But you know, I, I'm not too entirely sure of the the right solution uh, to, to try and make it a bit safer. I don't know if you guys have any views. I mean, it, it, to me, it's the nature of the beast. The, the fact is, these are small capacity motorcycles with very little horsepower. Uh, and they've all got the same horsepower, so that you, you can't actually um, gain very much in acceleration. You can't gain very much in, uh, in in top speed. The only difference you can make is in braking uh, and in slipstreaming. The only way you gain extra uh, extra speed is by getting in the draft of someone and then sort of whipping out behind it, which is why everyone was bunching up around sort of turn 13, between turn 13 and, and turn 14, because nobody wanted to leap because they knew that by the end of the straight, they would be a long way down. And uh, I mean, seriously, the only solution to it specifically for Moto3 is to put a chicane halfway down the uh, down the end of it so that they're not all uh, so totally focused on getting that one slipstream down that one part of the track. And Neil, obviously, we did see over the weekend that one of the possible solutions being put forward by the likes of John McPhee was for just a bigger bike to have more capacity and give yourself a little bit more power and that could make a difference it would also give you more of a stepping stone from the red bull rookies bikes or indeed like a cev bike as it is right now onto a world championship bike where riders then have to learn a little bit more gain their experience you wouldn't have quite so many riders at the front of the field in all likelihood because they'd have a little bit more to learn in their first year in the class yeah, yeah, it was an interesting uh, idea floated by John, um, and obviously his race was affected by that. He knew that if he could get through the first section of the lap with a bit of a gap, there would be a possibility that uh, by the time he came around the final corner, he would have just enough in hand to to break the slipstream. And obviously, it didn't work um, because he crashed out. Um, and you could sense there was just like a general frustration with with John obviously because he crashed but also with his team I saw um, you know some comments from his crew chief Mark Woodage on Twitter saying that you know the class doesn't really um, good basically good riding or the, or the rider that does the best work over the weekend and works and gets the best pace the best setup isn't always rewarded in fact it's quite rare that he's rewarded um, and I think uh, you could see that with someone like Gabriel Rodrigo who was by far the quickest guy all through the weekend but yeah, ended up finishing down in, where was it, sixth? Um, and yeah, I mean, they've obviously tried to get as much parity as possible in the class and it has had spectacular results, but a consequence of it is that you just have these kind of situations where no one's really able to to make their pace show. Um, and yeah, you kind of think to, one of the ways to make it easier is to go back to what it was like in you know the one to five days where you had, you know, five full factory bikes on the grid and then the rest were kind of three or four year old machines uh, or in some cases seven or eight year old machines you know because that you know technical disparity is 
one of the only ways that you can kind of keep these guys apart in such kind of terrifying big freight train groups. So it's it's really tough to say where to go because obviously they won't do that. Um, but yeah, I, I, I don't think it can go on like this because it's just, it's too dangerous. Yeah, but is the answer really to increase the capacity? I mean, we're heading then towards a, a Moto2 formula, uh, you know, which we kind of already have. Uh, I, you know, like you said, Neil, I mean, there's a lot of parity in, in Moto3 already. Um, you know, also we had a news from the FIM yesterday, the Grand Prix Commission have agreed rules for the next two years, um, keeping a lot of the, what's the, the phrase, uh, the standardization of Moto3 intact. Things like, you know, people might know, but, uh, you know, the maximum price for a Ronin chassis is 85,000 euros. Um, you know, a gearbox is capped at two and a half thousand euros. There's lots of little uh, criteria. Um, there's lots of little demands, really, for teams to, to have to meet to run a competitive motorcycle. And I think if you just hike it up to 300 or whatever and, and continue to, to you know, condense the rules like this, then we're going to have a situation where riders cannot make the difference. Um, a, a question for you, Ad, because, I mean, uh, we have, in MXGP, we've got like 250s and 450s, and the most uh, natural thing to do would be to switch from 250s to 450s. Uh, 450 would have a bit more torque, a bit more um, uh, speed. It would have just have a, it would allow the, you to ride it in a little bit, of a different way it wouldn't be so totally focused on corner speed do you is there that much of a difference in the engines in mxgp between the 250 and the 450 and do you have to ride them differently it's more like you say with the internals and the inertia um of course the power delivery as well dave i mean that there are the main differences uh when it comes to the actual competitive element and teams are doing absolutely everything they can to to maximize the output of a 250 whereas a 450 traditionally teams are dumbing down the power or fine-tuning the mapping so the riders can have the power exactly where they want in the band so it's uh it's, it's kind of two extremes really but um, if we try and apply it to, to road racing and especially MotoGP, I mean, I think it's maybe Steve's view on World Superbike and what the 300s are doing is maybe more apt because if you just increase the capacity of a 250 and say, okay, Moto3 is now going to be a 300 or a 350, uh, you know, you're just going to have a similar situation like you have in Superbike, I think. Wouldn't you say, Steve? Well, the one thing to remember about the 300 class has been that it hasn't really done an awful lot to teach riders things. Manuel Gonzalez is a good example of a rider coming through the 300 class. He's won the World Championship. He's a former European Talent Cup champion as well in the CEV paddock. So he's got a lot of experience. He's a very talented kid and he adapted really well to a super sport bike. But then there's been a host of other riders that tried to jump from a 300 bike and spent a full season trying to figure out how to ride a super sport bike and then disappeared. So... It's a tough one, and the 300 class isn't a good model to look at as well because the bikes are so under underpowered compared to a Moto3 bike, and the jump from a 300 to a 600 is bigger than the jump was from a Moto3 bike to a Moto2 bike or anything like that. It's night and day difference, and, and I think that's where it does get a bit tricky. I think it would be quite interesting, though, to see what a 450 Moto3 bike was actually like, though. I'd, I'd be quite keen just <laughs> to see what it was like. Why? Why do? You, why is there not more manufacturers in Moto Two? I mean, you consider especially like the the Asian market and how big the smaller cylinder motorcycles are there. I mean, you'd think Suzuki or Yamaha, you know, even Kawasaki would be using Moto Three as some sort of at least a, a marketing platform. Well, don't forget Kawasaki does have a two fifty, but I think it's got a little bit of a supercharger on it, so it wouldn't really be too applicable <laughs> for uh, 
for the Moto 3 Championship. But it is it is a case of it would be a nice little stepping stone to be able to jump into those classes and then be able to have a presence in the Grand Prix paddock. Uh, I think the, the problem is that... Um, you have to supply in the rules. You have to supply a minimum number of bikes, or be prepared to supply a minimum number of bikes. And I can't remember the number off the top of my head. I think it's uh, six. was it six? Okay, yeah, six. So you've got to put a, Neil holds up five fingers to signify that it's six. By the way, just for our, our viewers on a audio yes. podcast. So you've got to supply at least six bikes. So that is quite a. It's quite an investment. It's not easy to just step in. Um, it requires a significant amount of development. And the other thing is, I mean, you've got so much catching up to do. Honda and KTM have um, the they have the class wrapped up just because you know they've got all of this experience in uh, with the, the data from the bikes, all of this uh, experience with the, with the class. They know they understand how they've won and lost championships based on what their bikes can do. So they know so much, and it, it's uh, it's a big it's a loss of uh, it's a big disadvantage. Yeah, unfortunately, we saw that in the Moto2 class as well. Stability in the regulations does mean that you end up just going to a norm and you go to you know, a Calyx bike in Moto2 because that's the easiest way to guarantee you're going to tick all the boxes. It ended up being a championship that was decided by who had different suspension, WP versus Olin's, and then who had the latest Olin's versus the slightly older one. And that's what happens in Moto3 as well, because it's been the same basic formula since 2012, whenever the class started. So it is one of those things where maybe after 12 years, that will be the time when you can look to make some changes to the regulations. And the change that worked in Moto2 uh, was to switch from a, a peaky 600 engine to a more torquey 765 engine. You know, it's a triple. It has more torque. It's got more electronics. Uh, it needs more rider input to get the absolute best out of it. Just to move back to the Grand Prix weekend, Neil, you mentioned John McPhee a couple of moments ago as well, and his chat, the chat that you had with his crew chief, just in terms of being able to maximise weekend. Gabby Rodrigo was the same. You said both of those guys, two of the most experienced riders in the class, and both of them have struggled this season they've both been really fast been at the front of the field they've both had big crashes and come up with a lot less points than they should obviously enough with the way that the moto 3 class is right now it doesn't seem that that experience really makes a big difference because it's so close and it seems a bit strange that for those two riders that have that amount of experience that we've seen mistakes from them of the size that we've seen as well and you know it seems that almost as if the class has just gotten so close now that it's just reacting to everything around you rather than being able to plan things. Yeah, I think um, there was a, a tweet or a post on Instagram from Andrea Mino as well where he was posting footage of a, a race from 2017 saying something like, you know, back when racing was fun and wasn't stupidly dangerous or something to that effect. Um, and yeah, I guess you do get to the stage where you're maybe 24, 25, maybe like those lads and you're you're obviously a bit more mature. You're thinking more about your riding development and thinking more about the racing at hand. And it must just be so frustrating whenever you're continually running into the antics like we saw um, on, on Sunday. Um, and when you do continually think like, okay, I actually did a, a great weekend there up until the race, but, you know, same old story of getting shuffled back. And there is obviously such an art to being able to master the, the battle. Um, but if you look through history, there's only a very small number of riders that were able to do that uh, effectively. Very, very small. Um, and uh, obviously they've gone on to, to much bigger and better things. 
you think of Brad Binder, Joan Mayer in recent years. Um, but uh, but yeah, for, for those guys, it just must be infuriating and frustrating because you can see your chances of Moto2, I, I guess, looking at McPhee, you know, I can't imagine you know, this season is going to lead at, at, at its current state to a Moto2 ride that he's been coveting for the last couple of years. Um, but, you know, the only way to kind of get that is to risk it all and maybe do something a bit stupid like some of the other guys do uh, in order to, to win a race. What's, um, what, what do we think the promoters think of racing like this? I mean, you know, in some ways the rule book has been designed to force everybody together in, in such close proximity. Uh, you know, we don't quite see the same bedlam in Moto2, uh, but in Moto3 it's just, just a free-for-all. Um, it's had some severe, the worst kind of uh, consequences recently. I mean, as a promoter, do you sit there and say, this is fantastic entertainment, we roll the dice and we keep, you know, putting these races on like this? Or do we try and, you know, change things up? Because I think, you know, Dawn of Sports have shown in the past that they have kind of fiddled with the rule book to try and, um, you know, emphasize safety. Uh, you know, of course, like the MotoGP engine formula is a prime example. I mean, first of all, it's an entertainment product. They're selling an entertainment product. So they want uh, uh, interesting races. And a lot of fans are... They love uh, Moto3. It's their favourite race. Um, uh, secondly, they're extremely dependent on the manufacturers because, I mean, you know, Dorna can say, all right, we're going to race, I don't know, 500cc six cylinders. And uh, if no one builds a 500cc six cylinder, um, that's it. End of the end of the season or end of the series. So this, I mean, the factories have to want to write, uh, make, uh, build the bikes um, and MotoGP, Dorna, want a an interesting product they can sell, an entertaining product they can sell to TV broadcasters and which fans are going to want to watch. Yeah, but they also want to sell something that is uh, is safe and in which young riders are not getting seriously injured or killed um, in certain instances. Um, and from what we gather, there was a, a meeting with all the Moto3 riders and I think all the Moto3 team managers after the race on Sunday. Um, uh, apparently, the stewards said that um, obviously MotoGP followed Moto3 and they said, you know what, if Moto3 has to be delayed because we have to talk to these riders, it has to be delayed. This is like absolutely urgent. Um, and I think some pretty forthright views were were expressed. Um, some of the riders were told, look, if there's anything like that in the future, uh, you'll be disqualified instantly. So you think of someone like Jeremy Alcoba, um, what he did in the last lap, that would be instant disqualification in the future. Now, I just happened to kind of bump into um, a Moto3 rider coming out of that meeting and, you know, he was saying some very choice words about how that should have been applied to Sunday's race. And I'm inclined to agree, to be honest, um, because I think some of those tactics were unacceptable. Neil, you mentioned the stewards there as well. On this week's Paddock Pass Podcast Extra on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass Podcast, we talked about how stewards actually make their decisions, the processes that they have to go through and some of the factors that go into them. Like you said, though, Sunday was one of those cases where if penalties had been given on the spot, I don't think there could have been too many complaints for it. And you mentioned Jeremy Alcoba. I like Alcoba. Talked about him in the preseason shows about how much I enjoyed seeing him in the CEV Championship. He was a very very good rider in that championship actually had really good racecraft but the world championship is a different situation than the junior world championship and david he's been found lacking a, a little bit at times through the course of the season uh, i would say that he showed uh, outstanding racecraft 
at uh, Barcelona, he was doing exactly what he needed to do. He, he, he knew that he couldn't be leading the race. He knew that he had to be behind other riders. Uh, do you I, think that all the way through the race or just the, discounting the, the last the last lap, the penultimate <laughs> lap? Well, but I mean... Because the, but, he was right through the course of the race to always take the outside line and let people come through. And he wasn't going slowly when he was doing that but whenever you back up the whole field and it looks like it's a cycling race waiting for the sprint that's whenever it gets too dangerous especially whenever it's a big group this is the thing he was doing everything this is what i mean by good racecraft he was doing lots of good racecraft in the sense that he was doing everything he wanted he could to win the race was that safe a hundred percent not it was absolutely lethal and he should have been black flagged um, but uh, in terms of doing whatever it takes to win the race, yeah, no, it was great. It was very, it was very good. To, it was very smart riding. It was very smart, but very, very, very dangerous riding. And uh, I mean, you saw Denise onto, I think, on the last lap going into, through there when Alcobus sort of, you know, runs wide. He was sitting up going, "What are you like? What are you doing?" It was such a, a an obvious. When riders are doing that, then something is clearly wrong. I remember after Fanadi's incident at Misano a few years ago, the one thing that I got from a lot of world superbike riders wasn't that they were angry about Fanadi grabbing someone else's bike. It was actually just that he made it so obvious. And they all said the same thing to me. They said, there are so many ways that you can do the same thing. Fuck up someone's race completely without making it obvious. He just made it too obvious. And Alcoba was a bit like that in the last lap as well, like you said with Dennis Onchu. Well, that's another problem as well with the class. You know, you're talking about a bunch of uh, teenagers, you know, all kind of high on adrenaline and, you know, uncontrollable hormones in some cases. And the guy who's the eldest and most experienced in, in the category is a slightly homicidal maniac. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it is a kind of a recipe or a brew for, um, you know, some fireworks. Well, then you go to the other end of the spectrum and you go to one of the youngest riders. And uh, the good news is we can now stop calling Pedro Acosta the 16-year-old phenom. He's now 17, so he's obviously <laughs> vastly more mature. He's a changed rider over the course of the last couple of weeks. But when you look at Pedro Acosta, he's the exact opposite of what we're talking about with a lot of these riders. We're very methodical. I know you said Michael Laverty on the follow-up show last week, and it was very clear how highly MLAV thinks of Acosta. That's pretty clear from anyone watching the series as well. You can see just how good he is. But he, this was a race where you know he came through the pack, showed a lot of maturity, a lot of calm as well to come through the pack, and he was able to have a really good race on Sunday when, Neil, it looked like it was going to be a really tough weekend for him. Yeah, yeah. I mean, shocking qualifying, 25th place, I think he was in the grid. Uh, yet by lap 11, he was at the front. Um, and I think Acosta's had um, the possibilities to, to maybe win and the past two races that we've had, but just through one thing or another has just been kind of shuffled back and caught out um, on the last lap or the last two laps. Um, I mean, you look at the last lap, it was a complete lottery. Like whoever came across the line, um, whoever was situated eighth or ninth whenever Alcopa was dallying and, and messing around, um, you know, it ended up working out okay for them. Um, I think seven tenths of a second covered, what was it, 13 riders across the line starting the last lap. So, uh, you know, and I think some guys like Darren Binder were at the front of that group. They got completely penalized and then they got swamped back in the pack towards turn one. Um, so it was, in some respects, that last lap just the luck of the draw. Um, you know, Sergio Garcia won the race well. Alcoba um, positioned himself expertly, but potentially lethally, as David said. Um, you know, and... Uh, 
yeah, it's a, it's a good it's a good race win for for Garcia, but it was basically just a, a total lottery. It reminded me a lot of Phillip Island 2018, the Model 3 race there. Something similar happened there where someone, I think it was Jorge Martin, maybe didn't want to lead onto the last lap, onto the front straight and sat up. And uh, yeah, chaos kind of ensued. Um, so this was something similar here. Um, what's, our, what's our view on Sergio Garcia? Because he's won two races now. Uh, he's been pretty competitive. Uh, you know, he's running the Gas Gas, which is kind of obviously similar to a KTM machinery. I mean, I think, Neil, you mentioned it in, your, in some of your commentary over the weekend. I mean, KTM didn't have a particularly good record at, at, at Barcelona. Um, I think it's been very much a Honda track for the last few years. Uh, so that victory in itself, even though, like you mentioned, he was the one who was able to pop through from the group on the last lap, uh, was was a little bit of a surprise. But he's now up to second in the standings. Um, you know, apart from Acosta, is he maybe the guy that's most likely? Do we think? You actually listened to my commentary over the weekend. All right, I confess, somebody told me that's what you'd said. I mean, he's, yeah, I think he's a, I think he's a real class act. As uh, as Garcia, he's made big strides this year. Obviously, stepping into the the world championship winning team, um, and um, he's been patchy in the past. But when he has been good at the tracks that he really knows, like the Spanish tracks, Valencia, Aragon, uh, Barcelona, um, then he's tended to be right up there, right up at the front. Um, and you know, two wins in the past three races, I think you can definitely count him as a championship challenger now. Yeah, Garcia is always a very shy and inward kind of guy anytime you see him around the paddock, but maybe these few results are going to start to change that as well and, and we'll see that he really come into his own now that he's a Valencian rider racing for the Valencian team with Aspar as well. But we're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast and uh, just before we do that, we're going to hear from Michael Laverty on his thoughts on the Moto2 and Moto3 classes. <sighs> what a Moto3 race in Catalonia was good to watch in some ways but scary at the same time i was watching it between uh, my fingers really i didn't want to enjoy it but i did i'm guilty i'm part of the problem uh, in that we love watching those close races but it was too much for me honestly some of the moves on the run down to turn one when the bikes are filtering out and there's 10 motor three bikes spread across the track and you've got jeremiah Alcoba swerving one way, Gabriel Rodrigo swerving the other, Darren Binder bouncing off the next guy. It just seemed like it was over the top, especially coming one week after what happened with the tragic loss of Jason Depasque. It's like the the kids don't have that um, self-preservation. The, the, they haven't experienced to know that how close to the limit they are. And obviously we had another big incident with Ayumu Sasaki and, and obviously with the closeness. It was it ended up a three bike pile up and Ayumu took a, a big impact to the head. So it just seems like we talked about it last week in the podcast that it's not an if, it's a when. And then we want to watch that race. And, you know, it's two laps to go and Jeremy Alcoba decided to roll the throttle and really bunch everybody going up, going on to that front straight. Just for me, deserved a penalty. So I know we're seeing penalties for touching the green and small infringements, but a rider doing something like that in such a dangerous class when it's danger in a different way i know from the rider's point of view when you're on a small bike like that and the speeds aren't as great and you almost feel like you can bounce off each other uh, you know nudging a shoulder or an elbow and there's no harm done but when you see that how close those tires are coming to you know a front wheel touching a rear wheel down the front straight when there's 15 bikes all alongside each other if a rider goes down the middle of the track and gets run over it's um groundhog day we're in the same um possible disaster scenario so i think the the needs to be a hard look at the moto three class for 
first it was qualifying, now it's the races, and there's something. I, I spoke to Stuart Higgs um, at the BSB test the other day, and actually it was a breath of fresh air listening to someone who's so forthright with their opinions and not scared to, to do what needs done, and it, it, it does need a a heavy hand in terms of the the stewards and how they approach it and he had a similar scenario with the Supersport 300 kids because it is low power bikes and that low speed going down the straight creates a weaving scenario where riders bump off each other it increases the danger element and Stuart made them all look each other in the eye shake hands and make them accountable for the their friend and their even if they're an enemy if there's someone that's a rival you know make them accountable for the, the rider they're about to bump into because their lives are in each other's hands and it seems that there's um, almost an acceptance for that type of riding and it's almost like the tracks have got safer over the years so there's been a way of thinking recently that it's safe now you've got an airbag you can you can you don't have to look at the dangers you can ride uh, to the maximum don't close the throttle that's the cardinal sin whereas back whenever I was coming through and I think until recent times you always had that um, air of caution where you were thinking about where you needed to get out where if, if, if a mistake happened the guy in front if you didn't um, have enough room to get out whereas that doesn't exist anymore it seems like you know they just are never prepared to close the throttle so sorry it's a bit of a rant but I, I do feel strongly about it it's it frustrates me um, watching some of the moves that some of the riders are pulling out there um, as for the race itself, I was gutted for John McPhee. He was so fast on the day. He had the pace to break the field, but because of the two scenario, Moto Three was never really going to get away unless he he had a you know half a second gap in the first two or three corners and then went to work around the rest of the lap. He might have stretched enough where where he didn't come onto the straight. As happened on two or three occasions when he had about a four tenth gap, and by the time he reached turn one, the rest of the field were were breathing down his neck again. Unfortunately, he just was slightly offline. He had a, a moment from the rear and it caught him out and he high-sided off. So what could have been a race win on the day ended up another DNF for John. So he just can't catch a break at the moment. But um, I was impressed with his ability and speed and his riding. He was the class of the field on the day and clean overtakes, aggressive, hard overtakes in the brakes, no swerving, no bouncing off each other, um, showing, showing skill and maturity, which I don't see from enough of the front group of Moto3 riders at the moment. So rant over Moto Two was a, a different race. It was almost like a tri- time trial up front. Uh, Remy Gardner looking fantastic again this weekend. So strong in practice qualifying and in the race. And um, yeah, I think he's now a true believer. Having that contract for Moto GP has taken a little bit of pressure off Remy and at the moment, or it's definitely relaxed him in that he can ride to his best. So he looks um, fantastic as does his teammate, Ralph Fernandez. But the big turnaround for me was Augusto Fernandez. I thought he was strong throughout practice and, and um, had a really good race rhythm. So it was nice to see that return to form for the Mark VDS man. It's been a, a tough run really since 2019, since the, the Pons days for him when he was um, battling for, for race wins and looking like a championship contender. He hasn't shown that form until now. So nice to see him him kind of back on the pace again. It, it is a, a tough class Moto2 whenever you're you're missing a little bit of something, but um, he's he's found some answers. So uh, yeah, good to see that. Also, Vierge back in the podium for the Petronas team there, having a really tough run with um, with Jake struggling at the moment and Xavi's not quite been been there this season. So a return to form for him. So yeah, it was, was nice to see that. And a little bit of a surprise, not to see Sam battling at the front he good solid points in seventh but it was a different Sam Lowe's because every race I've seen him in since probably summer the middle of the 
the season last year, I was going to say the summer, but it was probably August time. He's always had the speed. He's always been the fastest man on the track, but Catalonia was a little bit different for him. So solid points. But um, yeah, for Sam, not easy at the moment, needing to claw those points back on a, a strong uh, contender in Remy Gardner. Welcome back to the Panic Pass podcast follow-up show fueled by Elfmark VDS Racing. And uh, in the Catalan Grand Prix, we saw once again the Moto2 class that this was a weekend where... Remy Gardner really was able to excel. This was a weekend where he had just come fresh from having a MotoGP contract signed, Neil, and he went out and he looked strong all the way through the race, all the way through the weekend. And uh, it was another one where he just hunted down his teammate, a bit like Mugello, and uh, was able to come away with a great win. Yeah, it was a great win from Remy. Um, you know, basically a perfect fortnight from him. Two wins, uh, MotoGP contract confirmed for next year. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, it's still pretty tight at the top with um, with himself and Fernandez, but uh, yeah, Remy's just looking like the the kind of complete championship animal. Um, I thought it was impressive. Remy is the heaviest rider on the grid, I think, by two kilos. I mean, he's given away quite a lot of weight to his main com- contenders. I think maybe nine kilos or something like that to Fernandez. I'm not quite sure uh, the exact weight of Sam Lowe's, but you know, giving away a good couple of kilos there. And we've seen in certain hot races in the past, like Hareth last year, Hareth this year, that that has maybe come back and, and kind of bit him. Um, and, uh, you know, this was a race where tire wear is obviously something that needs to be managed. We had hot conditions, Moto2 race going at the, uh, the kind of middle of the afternoon after MotoGP. Um, and, you know, Remy just played it absolutely to perfection. Um, noticed that Augusto was, sorry, that Ralph Fernandez, his teammate, was right behind him, let him lead sussed them out for most of the race and then bolted with I think three laps to go and you know uh, Raul just had no answer for him whatsoever in the final lap so yeah just a, a real textbook performance um, very clinical very assured was there in every session throughout the weekend um, you know and Gardner is looking like a real yeah I wouldn't say cert for the title but you'd have to be a very brave man to bet against him at this stage what I particularly liked about it was the fact that um, he didn't really want to pass uh, Raul Fernandez. Um, it's just that he sort of accidentally caught up with him, and uh, Fernandez sort of going into turn one with what was it, three or four laps to go, was, was a little bit slower. Um, Remy almost runs into the back, gets in front of him, thinks, oh, "All right, we'll go," and he went, and that was it. So, yeah, I mean, it showed just how much control he had in that race. In the uh, post-race press conference, um, it was interesting watching Ralph Fernandez's body language because he uh, he kind of exuded a frustration. He said, you know, but in terms of speed, there was very little between the teammates, but he did explain that the, the difference was coming down to racecraft and experience. He said, you know, he kept using the word he, you know, because he was sitting three feet away from Remy Garden. He kept saying, he knows more than me. Uh, he's been here longer than me. Uh, he's a bit more advanced than me. Um, it was uh, obviously a, a translation thing, but um, it was kind of, I don't think there's any animosity between the pair, but I, I wouldn't say there's any great friendship either. Um, but uh, it's, uh, it, I, Moto2 at the moment has given us one of those fantastic, I use the word fantastic, but uh, one of those seasons where you have an inter-team rivalry like we did with VDS. Um, I think it was Mika Calio and uh, Tito Rabat some years ago. Um, you know, and when those seasons crop up and you see those kind of McLaren-esque Prost, uh, you know, and Senna kind of rivalries going on, I don't think it's quite as, as ill, um, ill as, uh, you know, as, as the F1 days, but it's, um, it's close, isn't it? It's, it's competitive and I think it's going to be, you know, minimal chipping away of points as, as the races go on between those two. I think you'd have to go an awful lot more toxic 
than uh, what we see in Moto2 to make yeah. that comparison. I'd, I think you'd nearly have to go to, and we mentioned it on uh, the regular show as well, hashtag Sepang-ish, but uh, <laughs> it's hashtag Sepang-clash, sorry. And uh, I think that's the kind of relationship you'd need to go to to make that comparison. But I did find it really interesting that this was a weekend where a few riders really did step back into it, Neil. You mentioned uh, Augusto Fernandez there. He was able to have a much more competitive weekend, looked a lot more comfortable. He was fast all the way through the weekend. And Javi Vieira as well. Yeah, yeah, there was a couple of names. Um, you could also say Bo Bensonator, who I think was running third for most of the race before, um, you know, suffering from a bit of tower wear in the end and uh, losing out, um, dropping to sixth. Still a good ride from Bo, though, uh, considering those aren't always conditions in which he excels. Um, but yeah, you're right. Um, Vierge, I think, first podium since Australia 2018. You know, it's a long time off the podium. He has had some decent potential over the last year and a half since he moved to the Petrona Sprinter Racing Team. Um, but one thing or another seemed to play against him. I think at Mizano last year, he was maybe, uh, you know, he crashed out when he had, um, you know, definitely had podium pace. Um, but yeah, he managed to put it all, all together here at his, at his home race. Um, yeah, that first podium for the team is definitely long overdue and then Augusto I mean Augusto uh, and Sam Lowe's um, tested in Barcelona I think after the French Grand Prix they put in over 100 laps each um, and right from Friday morning Augusto had great pace and I think if you look at the end of the race you know both Augusto and Lowe's um, they sort of paid for you know I think Augusto had an average start Lowe's didn't have a great start um, but if those guys got away if they qualified in the front row, got away with with Remy and and Raul, I think they could have um, definitely been a factor, maybe for second place. Um, so yeah, uh, certainly in Sam's case, it was just a, it was just a, a bad first lap and a bad first couple of laps because once he started setting the pace, he was as quick as the leaders. Yeah, it was yeah, but I think Sorry, it, ahead, uh, I, I think it was really important for um, uh, for Sam just to finish the race. Um, because, you know, he's crashed out was the last two. Um, and I, just to go back to Bo Bensnyder, I'd like to give a shout out to Bo Bensnyder because um, he's known amongst sort of the dirt racing community. Uh, when it's cold on this grip, he's fantastic. Um, but as soon as it's hot and slippery, uh, th- that's it. No more, uh, you know, he just can't perform. That was completely the opposite. I mean, Bo really had a really strong race. Um, he was combative. He fought, which is, again, something he's not known for. Um, he was, uh, there's no grip. He was still fast. It was hot. There was no, uh, he was still fast. It just really, it was really quite impressive. I'd like to give a shout out to um, Albert Arenas, actually. Um, you know, he finished uh, down in 12th. I mean, there's no great no great shakes at all but you know as the the reigning moto three world champion i mean he's been slowly working his way up the classification i mean he was wasn't in the top 20 in the first races uh you know grabbed his first points i think in portugal perhaps and since then he's been sort of climbing up the ranking so i mean to get near the top 10 in moto two uh first season there maybe there's some progression happening he's not uh flashing in the pan like some other riders you can say where they're you know vying for top fives one minute and then buried outside the top 15 the next so let's see what he can do well david gave 
Bo Benchneider a shout out. Adam has given a shout out there as well. I'm going to give a shout out to our Patreon supporters because on patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast, we've got the paddock note show that goes out all the way through Grand Prix weekend. So if you want to become a paddock insider, you can do that for $10 a month. And with that, you get to hear an update from basically once the debriefs finish, the four of us get on a Zoom call and get everyone up to speed as quickly as possible from all the news within the paddock. Neil, just to go back to our uh, our usual contenders obviously we've got the two IO bikes they've had one twos the last few rounds <laughs> you've got uh, Marco Bezzecchi and Sam Lowe's and this season's been a bit of a strange one because Bezzecchi hasn't really shown what we would have expected from him even though he's there churning away points sits third in the world championship and then obviously on the other end of that scale this was probably the first weekend where Sam didn't quite have that pace to be right at the front all the way through the weekend as you mentioned a good pace during the race came came through as the race progressed but uh, this was a bit of a tough race for those two title contenders yeah yeah exactly i think it was you know, if you look at his weekend as a whole it was actually a pretty good result for bezeki because he's um he was struggling on saturday he was uh he was quite lost um didn't qualify so well um but said he made a big step in um in morning warm-up and managed to to find something which helped him in the uh, low grip conditions um and i think with lowe's it was, you know, you might not have had the speed of the the IO guys, but you definitely had the consistency. Um, and yeah, I think we've maybe seen in the past that, you know, when he comes back from a race where um, he's maybe made a mistake before, he's just a little bit tentative, like we saw in Hareth. He kind of admitted that he didn't feel comfortable in the first part of the race because he was so wary of not making a mistake. And this was a, you know, Mark Fidesz's 200th Grand Prix in their quite illustrious history. Um, you know, this was imperative that both of the guys came home and, and finished the race. Um, and I think amidst the kind of mayhem uh, at the start of the race, that, that was maybe something that maybe even subconsciously was playing on his mind. Um, but yeah, I think from the late, the eighth lap of the race, he was he was lapping as fast or faster than, than Gardner. So um, yeah, you know, the, the starts I think were an issue last year for the most part and still not quite perfect at the moment. Um, and if he can get that sorted out, then... Uh, you know, then he should be back fighting at the front, I think. Obviously, it's a weekend off for the MotoGP paddock before back-to-backs in Saxon Ring and Assen. And that's when uh, four of us will be pretty busy then once again with uh, lots of shows during the week. Obviously enough, for this week, we've had uh, a busy week with the Catalan Grand Prix. Next week, we'll also have a World Superbike show with myself and Gordo. And then there'll also be the regular Paddock Pass podcast as well. So, David, what's the what's the plan for the weekend off? Uh, well, it's my wife's birthday tomorrow, so um, uh, we're uh, going to go. We're going to have a nice day out, go out on our bicycles, and um, do something very Dutch, um, and just watch a bit of superbikes and not do very much. That's oh, not a bad weekend. What about you, Neil? Uh, I believe I'm meeting Mr. Adam for uh, a bit of a cycle tomorrow morning. We're going to tackle uh, Tibby Dabble. Um, yeah, see who can give the other person a heart attack first. I think is the uh, is the order of the day. <laughs> Adam, I'll be honest, Neil did ask me to go up to Badabu at one stage, but I think that was literally just so that he'd have a big, big windbreaker in front of him just to make it a little bit easier to, to get up the climbs. Well, Steve, what he doesn't know is that I've got a huge picnic hamper and I'm going to put it on his back just before we set off. So, uh, there, you know, a bit <laughs> of ballast. You know, motor three regulations, weight, control, the rest of it. There you go. So that's it. 
Yeah, it it is a minimum combined weight. I tell you what, I'd need a big hamper if I was going up that mountain with Neil. But uh, I tell you what, boys, enjoy your enjoy your romantic cycle up the mountains, <laughs> and uh, David, enjoy your romantic weekend with Rosha. And uh, from all of us on the Paddock Pass podcast, big thank you to everyone for listening to this week's show and for supporting the podcast. If you have any questions about the MotoGP class, the Moto2, Moto3, or the World Superbikes, just drop us a message at Paddock Pass Pod, and we'll make sure to get that answered over the next couple of weeks. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. Lads... I did something incredibly stupid. Uh, what I did was I put the microphone into the headphone jack rather than into the microphone jack on my recorder. And I can't believe how fucking stupid.